Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes for another difficult text. And this time in the New Testament, at the end of one of the Gospels, the parable of the ten virgins. This is one that was sent in by one of our listeners, and we've had several that way. And it, I really love that, and I would encourage people to send in difficult passages because it forces us to move around in all of the Bible. And this is a great example of, of a text that presents interesting difficulties that many people may not have thought about. Yeah, I love that uh, we're getting a bunch of these from listeners because I think the point of this series is not just what you and I think are difficult texts, but what most people reading through would think. And in, and in this text, certainly you read through and you think, okay, there's something I'm not quite getting about this text. Those are right. exactly the texts that we want to do because we really want to try to understand uh, what the Bible is saying, what it means for us, what our takeaways should be, where there are areas of dispute and where there are areas of clarity that maybe we just aren't aware of. And so right. I love getting suggestions. I think this was a, an interesting one to dive into. It's not one that people teach on very often. If you are doing a sure. parable series, I don't know that I've any, I don't know if I've heard anyone preach on the 10 virgins in a selected series. Now, if you're just going through Matthew, then you'll hit it. But I don't right. know that this is anyone's favorite parable. <laughs> That's a good point. It's, uh, But you know what? When I read this, Cole, and I know we'll get into this in a second, I had the nagging feeling. You know, you read it and you think, I think I know the main point of this, but I had a nagging feeling that maybe there was more here. And so I'm glad that we're talking about this one. Yeah, I am too. I think the important thing with all these parables, really any difficult text is to take a flyover of the context. And in this one, I, I found something kind of interesting about this parable specifically. This, when I was, when I opened up just to read this, I noticed that the beginning of this parable says the kingdom of heaven will be like, and that set mm -hmm. off a little bit of a question in my mind. If you are familiar with the gospel of Matthew, it says the kingdom of heaven is like several times. Right. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many times it says that. But then secondly, what really piqued my interest was when it said the kingdom of heaven will be like. I thought that's that's interesting. I'm going to dive into that. So I did a quick word study on this to see where this phrase is used in the gospel of Matthew. And I would I would encourage people, whether you're using a concordance or uh, you know, to look up the different instances of a word or mm -hmm. a Strong's number or something like that, or whether you have Logos and you're able to just do a quick search of the word and confine it down to a gospel. Or if you're in a shorter book, this would be hard to do in Matthew, but if you're in a shorter book, sometimes it's it's good to just do an inductive style. I'm just going to underline every time I see this word in the text. Sometimes right. you can really gain some insight by doing that. So I just mm -hmm. did a quick, quick search for these two words. Uh, the kingdom of heaven will be like is in Greek is basically... Kingdom being one word and will be like as a verb. So I found that there are actually 11 times that this formula is used in Matthew. And it starts with the parable of the sower in chapter 13. And in fact, in chapter 13, there are seven parables that are introduced with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then you fill in the blank. And, and Jesus tells seven parables in a row. And these include some of the most famous parables in the Bible, the parable of the sower, the parable of the mustard seed treasure hidden in a field, the pearl of great price. Then he continues on in chapter 18, you get the unforgiving servant. The, the kingdom of heaven is like a master who calls in his servant. 
which by the way is the parable that Tim Keller's new book Forgive is based on, which is really yep. a great book. Um, chapter 20, the kingdom of heaven is like a person who goes out to recruit laborers. And mm-hmm. chapter 22, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast where the host of the wedding feast goes and invites people. So you're getting a trajectory through the gospel of Matthew of these kingdom parables. And not every parable in Matthew is introduced this way. And in fact, I would argue that not every parable about the kingdom is introduced this way, but it's interesting to see how commonly the kingdom of heaven is like is used in Matthew because all of a sudden you arrive at the last one of these parables, which is in chapter 25. Uh The only one in the future tense. It's the only one that says the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the, the bridegroom. So there's something immediately that sticks out to us. This is an eschatological parable. This is about the end times in some way or another. People disagree about what part of the end times. The second way you would know that is because if you're reading straight through here, this is in a discourse about the end times. Jesus has been talking for almost two chapters now about the end times, about what it's going to be like when the Son of Man returns, the judgment. There's some really prominent, uh, famous passages in here. And more locally, it's in the middle of three parables on being ready for the return, even though this is maybe the key to this parable, being ready, even though you don't know when the return is going to be. So you get in chapter 24, the master who comes home to a servant, a wise servant who's doing his work. After this, you get a really famous parable of the talents and the master Mm -hmm. returns to see what, what his servants have done with his money. And then after that, you get the promise of final judgment with the sheep and the goats and what's done for the least of these. So with that context in mind, even before we start into this parable, we already know several things about what we should be looking for. We're looking at judgment. We're looking at the future. We're looking at waiting for the return of Christ. We're looking at the nature of the kingdom. Uh, So we've got a lot of good clues from the context before we even start to read this parable. Yeah, agreed. That's that's really interesting because uh, this does have a s- little bit of an eschatological sense to it. Maybe that's why there's the future uh, will be like in this one. I think that's interesting. Well, would you like me to uh, read this text? It's 13 verses. I'll go ahead and read it out of the English Standard Version, and then we can dive into the text itself. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy more for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So, Cole, first question, why do you think this is a difficult passage? What strikes you about about this passage? Well, I think there are probably three 
different facets of this parable that make it a difficult parable. The first being the content of it. I mean, the warning at the end is really difficult to hear. And this is if we go back to our little taxonomy of why is this text difficult? There is an element of this parable that is not difficult because we don't know what it says. It's not difficult because we don't know what it means. It's difficult because it's hard to hear. And mm-hmm. that's that's a very legitimate difficulty. Why is it that Jesus would say to some people who clearly are involved with him in some way, I don't right. know you and keep them shut out? That's that's very difficult. That in some ways, tongue in cheek, we might say that doesn't sound very Christ-like, which always kind of reveals that we have maybe an image of Christ that isn't quite aligned with the Gospels. But the distance right. between our perception of what Christ would do, could do, should do, and the things that take us by surprise uh, are great areas for growth. And so I would say this is one of those where it doesn't seem quite like what Jesus would do, but clearly this is what he's saying. So we need to we need to open our minds and figure out why would Jesus say this and what's what's he after. The other difficulties, though, are more along the lines of what is this saying and what does it mean? What is it saying? There's a lot of, of questions among the commentators about who we should identify as the virgins and what, what exactly is going on in this story. And we'll talk about why that's a difficult question in a minute. The third thing would be more of what does this mean? If the message of the parable is watch therefore, for, you know, neither the day nor the hour, the question that we have to ask is what does watching entail? What, Mm -hmm. what is it in the way that we, interpret this, what is the equivalent for us of having our oil ready in our lamps? What, you know, so what's required of us to be part of the wise group as opposed to the foolish group? So I would lay those three things out as difficult parts of this text. Yeah, I probably agree with that completely and then add maybe one other angle, and that is it, on the surface, it violates our sense of fairness in this sense. You could think about it this way. The text doesn't imply this, but this is where I think our mind normally goes. Is Here you have these 10, in this case, uh, maidens, who have all been faithful and make one mistake and are not prepared in one instance. Now, uh, that's interesting that our minds tend to go there. That's just the way we think as Western Christians. And the text doesn't indicate that. It indicates, in fact, that being watchful is something that needs to has to characterize us at all times, not just sometimes. But I do think it can violate our kind of a secular sense of fairness. And mm-hmm. so maybe that's one reason that it jumps out at us. Well, I think some of the some of the clarity around these issues is going to come out when we start to look at the way people have interpreted this this passage in the past. I was struck in some ways looking at some of the commentators. Every now and then you have this in certain passages where all the commentators seem like they're answering a question that either you weren't asking or doesn't get you to the questions that you were asking. You were asking, right. This this parable is kind of like that in the sense that all the commentators are quick to say the moral of this parable or the teaching of this parable is be watchful. You must be watchful. Okay, I gleaned that from reading verse 13. Watch, therefore. What does it mean to watch? That's the question we're really right. going to grapple with. And so in some ways, the commentators are not extremely help, helpful on this on this uh, text. But what they do for us is they provide some background that's really important. So I think mm-hmm. the way that we have to come at this 
initially is to ask, what is actually going on in this parable? What's the setting? What's maybe some of the cultural uh, aspect of this that we would miss unless we knew what people were talking about with weddings and bridegrooms and uh, what's probably more like bridesmaids here as opposed to virgins. Right. But right. Um, what does all that tell us about what's going on in the parable? A good question. And uh, I think you make a good point. That word there is virgin, but the emphasis is not on the fact that they're virgins. The emphasis is that they're young women. And I think bridesmaid would be a good way to think about it. And in ancient customs, as probably most of our uh, listeners are familiar with this idea, is that when a young man and a young woman are engaged, betrothed, engaged to be married, then uh, then the young woman would continue to live with her parents. The young man goes home and builds a room onto the house, a place for them to live. And when that's done, actually when his father says that's done, uh, then he will come in a procession to the bride's house. Well, she doesn't know when this will be, and so she's supposed to be prepared. And of course, her bridesmaids are prepared, and it would the groom would come and say, it's finished. I have a place for you. Let's go. And so they would have a procession back to the groom's house and they would then have a party wedding. You know, there was an extended affair. And that's what's happening here is the bridesmaids are waiting, knowing that, okay, we think it's going to be now. It goes later than they think, and it goes into the night. And so for the procession, the bridesmaids have to have lamps to light the way for the procession. And so that's, I think, basically what's happening here is they are waiting. They're preparing so that they can escort the bride when the bridegroom comes to her to take her home. And so there are a lot of parallels there. As you, as I talk about that, I'm sure it's clicking in your head. Wow, this sounds a lot like you know Christ coming for us, and of course it is. But this is a common uh, example in those times, and you would think, wow, those bridesmaids—they have to be prepared for this. They—they they should have brought more. In other words, we might be sympathetic towards those bridesmaids, thinking, wow, seems like a small mistake. But in that culture at that time, they would have said, well, that's unthinkable thing to do to not be prepared. It's your job to be prepared. So I think that probably sheds a little bit of light on how the hearers would have heard that. Mm -hmm. So who who have people typically thought these virgins are, these bridesmaids are? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, it, I would say one thing that it's not, and that is that the five and five, I don't read into that, that that means, you know, half the people that think they're saved are and half the people aren't. I don't read anything into the five and five in particular. But if you think about it in the context of applying it to us, which is what Jesus is doing, you would say that those are the people who are following Christ or those are the people who are awaiting Christ's return. And so I guess you would say those are, quote, Christians. And uh, so when Christ comes here, you have a little bit of a mixing of metaphors because the church is the bride. But I think the bridesmaids here are also waiting expectantly. And it does have a little bit of a judgmental aspect. What do you think? Do you read any distinction in between the bride and the bridesmaids in this parable? No, I think this is all part of the wedding party it, yeah. to make the metaphor of the 
church being the bride of Christ, I think we, we have to extend that here to include the whole bridal mm-hmm. party. Um, I think most people have seen in the history of the church have seen this as outwardly religious people. So, so anybody who is in some way associated with the church, they go to church, they claim to be a Christian, they virtue signal Christian things. It's anybody that has some kind of allegiance to the church. Um, so even from the time of Augustine, this he he saw this as the true test for who is a believer and who is not a believer. Uh, but all these people are in the church or associated with the church, outwardly religious. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was uh, in doing my research, I read a quote from George Whitfield, who was a contemporary of John Wesley, and commenting on this. He says to his, this was a sermon he was giving. He said, you may perhaps live honest and outwardly moral lives, but if you depend on that morality or your works to justify you before God, you have no share. And so he was, he took that same interpretive approach that five of them looked good on the outside. They had the lamp and it was burning for a while, but behind the scenes, they had not brought any oil. The other five lived more, quote, authentic lives. So I think that's interesting you say that because uh, I just read that Whitfield quote, and that's how he takes the passage. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty then on who who the virgins would be is clearly part of this group, and I would agree, definitely not exactly half, just because mm-hmm. of the five and five, but part of this group is a group that is being turned away from the kingdom. And this is part of the real difficulty of this parable is there, I think sometimes we like to think, well, there won't be anybody that's turned away. There will be people who turn away. And some of this honestly goes back to the, the reception of CS Lewis's work where you have him say things like, you know, the doors of hell are locked from the inside and there will be two groups of people. Some who say thy will be done and some to whom God will say, thy will be done. So that mm-hmm. you you almost pretend like there's the only two groups of people are the people who love God and proclaim themselves Christians and people who hate God and proclaim themselves to be atheists. The Gospels don't present things quite so starkly. I don't mm-hmm. think you can come away from the Gospel of Matthew without thinking to yourself, there are some people who... And we can debate whether they think they're saved. I think that's probably what you would have to say, but we can Mm -hmm. debate that maybe. There's certainly people who are outwardly a part of the kingdom who end up not being part of the kingdom. And that is a very difficult thing to grapple with uh, for a lot of different reasons. But part of the way you see this in the gospel is in chapter 7, for example, Mm -hmm. Jesus says, this is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, there will be some who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, basically pleading to get in to the kingdom at the end. Right. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And that's at the section where you have the wise man building his house on the rock and the foolish man building his house on the sand. The distinction there, the people that hear the word of God and actually do it are the people who are that Jesus knows who are the people that get into the kingdom. Then again, uh, in chapter 25 verse 30, you have the wicked servant who does not gain any interest on the master's money. 
uh, or no, the, the, the wicked servant in the parable before that, who doesn't have, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he doesn't get any interest on his, on his master's money. It says in verse right. 30, he's cast out into the outer darkness. And uh, in that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then finally, in 25, verse 45 through 46, this is about the people who, instead of giving to the poor and the hungry and visiting those who are in prison, Jesus says to these people, depart from me, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. And these people say, Lord, when did we see you? And he will say to them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there are people in this gospel who think they're part of the kingdom, but there's a disconnect between what they think or what they might associate themselves with and what they actually do. There's a doing component that's missing in every single one of these stories. And sure enough, that's true in our parable as well. Who are the virgins? Well, everybody associated with the church, but the thing that distinguishes the wise virgins from the foolish virgins is the wise virgins have actually done what you're supposed to do in the kingdom, which here is is talked about as waiting. So I think the, the biggest thing that we should say is this is a differentiation between people who are associated with the church or with Christ, people who are church people. This is not one of those apologetic parables where we're looking at the clear divide between people who proclaim to believe and people who don't. And that's right. part of what makes it such a difficult parable. I agree. Uh, you know, as much as I like C.S. Lewis's work, I think his theology, in my view, is deficient in this area for this reason. I believe he situates too much control over salvation or condemnation on the human side of the equation. I think it's certainly true that there are people that choose, so to speak, to be condemned. They reject God. And there are those who choose, uh, I'm using these words in quotes, but essentially are following Christ. But I don't think it's that simple. I think that sounds fairer to us, but I don't think it's that simple. I think what you have in this and the parable of the sower, and unfortunately, biblically speaking, there are going to be people who want to go to heaven, but haven't prepared to go to heaven, to use the language of this parable. In other words, they want to go to heaven, but they are not persevering. So that's what's happening here. That's what's happening in the parable of the sower. And so I do think there's more categories here than C.S. Lewis contemplates. Yes, certainly in those examples, I think that gives us a little bit too simplistic a view of what people are like. Uh, it reminds me of when Jesus teaches, which is the which is the obedient servant, the one yeah. who says they're going to obey, but then doesn't, or the one who says they're not going to, but then does. <laughs> Right. There's an action component to all of these. And that's one of the themes that runs through Matthew. It runs all the way through your New Testament is if you are a follower of Christ, you're going to act like one. Now, by the help of the spirit, by being a new creation, this is not all on us. This isn't workspace salvation. It's proof that salvation has taken place in our lives. And so we go back to the parable for a minute. The identity of these maidens, these uh, virgins is fairly straightforward It comes with a very difficult thing to stomach, which is there's going to be people who want to be a part of it, but don't do anything. The crux of the parable then, and I think this is really the difficult textual part of this parable, 
what does it mean to be watchful? What does it mean to prepare? How do you know that you're in the wise group as opposed to the foolish group? Because I think somebody listening is probably thinking, well, this is terrifying then. You think you're part of it, Mm -hmm. and then you find out at the end you're not, and you didn't do enough good things. That's not really what we're saying. Now, there is a startling element to this of, yes, there are going to be people who went to church who do not end up in heaven. But it won't Mm -hmm. be because uh, there's like a lottery system in heaven, and all of a sudden (laughs) they find out they're not in, or that there's a quota or something, and it's graded on a curve, and only the top 25% of good deeds get in. And you know, uh-huh. your generation, there were a lot of good deeds. If you'd been born a hundred years earlier, people were more wicked. Than, <laughs> you would have made. You would have gotten yeah. in. But sorry, you know, you're only you know 79th percentile. <laughs> yeah. This generation that that's really not what we're saying. But I don't want to smooth over the fact that there is a little bit of a jarring, scary part of this parable, which is there's a possibility that you're going to be around a bunch of Christian people, that you're going to be going through the motions, that you're going to be outwardly religious. And at the end, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. That's part of this parable that we really have to come to grips with. Do you think that that's intentional on Jesus' part? I do think it's interesting that you see so many parables, I mean, three in a row here, so to speak, that are giving kind of that startling message. Do you think that's intentional on Jesus' part to wake us up or get our attention? I do. I think it's directly relational to the fact that he's talking to Pharisees and scribes in a lot of these sections who he is very much trying to convince you are not internally what you claim to be externally. You are not Mm -hmm. friends of God. You are not in the kingdom. Uh, You could be if you would repent, if you would actually trust in the one who God has sent. But in your current situation, You have all the external trappings, but on the inside, like he says, the outside is clean, but the inside is full of dead bodies. That's a a jarring indictment for them then, the scribes and Pharisee class, but it's still a jarring indictment for us now, the church-going class, the nominally Christian class. Uh, So I do think there's an edge there that Jesus is really trying to get this point across. You need to examine yourself. You can't just assume that you're in, born into a Christian family, grew up mm-hmm. in church, all of that. No, you. what's actually going on in your heart now? And I think he uses the language he does, the vivid depictions of hell and eternal suffering here to make sure that you take this really seriously, because it is serious. So I do think there's an edge to it. What do you think? Uh, I do too. I think it's, I think, you know, I say this a lot. Jesus is more radical than we think he is, because we like to uh, tame Jesus a little bit. We want him to be a tame lion, a la C.S. Lewis. And, but he's not. He's 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 good, but he's not tame. And I think this is Jesus untamed, so to speak, giving us the straight talk and getting our attention. And I, you know, to me, what he's saying is, and the way I would read, uh, see what your thought is on this. I'll put this out as a conjecture on what it means to be watchful. Is the idea of living in expectation of the return of Christ, longing for the return of Christ, but in expectation. Because complacency, by definition, lives without the expectation of something ever happening. Uh, You can get complacent about your taxes. You can get complacent about a lot of things. And what does that actually mean to be complacent? It means, well, 
I, I know that's going to come intellectually, but I don't actually live as though that's really true. And I think Jesus is trying to shake up the complacency. And I would say that being prepared means living your life with the expectation that Jesus is going to come back. Because I think there are things that you will do. I think there are sacrifices you will make. I think there are forgiveness you will give. I think there are debts you will forgive if you expect the master to come, which you may become complacent about if you don't live that way. And what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's uh, a great way to look at this preparation process. The key takeaway has to be something along the lines of preparing for the second coming. And what does preparing for the second coming mean if you don't know when the second coming is? Well, it it has to mean living like the second coming is a reality, that Jesus is going to come again and that he is, that he does require things of his people. And you're living uh, according to his plan and according to his commandments when he comes back. Um, I think the allegorical interpretation over the centuries has been that the oil is good works, that people are supposed to build up enough good works and doing good works. I think there's an analog to this in some of the dispensationalists that read this passage talking about the rapture. Jesus is going to come back and rapture people. And if you're doing good things when the rapture happens, not that all dispensationalists would say this, but the analog would be, you know, if you're doing good things when the rapture is happening, you're going to go. If you're in a good season of mm-hmm. your life following Christ, you're going to go. But if you're not, then you're going to be left. And after that, you'll have the chance to turn things around. But, you know, you got to be on your best behavior in, Christ, in case Christ comes back. And I do remember being taught that, you know, when Christ comes back, would you want to be doing that? Would you, you know, if Jesus came back right now, would you want to be in the situation you're in? I right. don't think that's quite what this passage is saying. Uh, I think that's a little bit more manipulative. But Mm -hmm. uh, you can tell how people get things like that from a passage like this. I think the the bigger picture of what preparation looks like, you have to understand a little bit of what the what the bridesmaids are supposed to be doing in this passage, because part of it is they all fall asleep. It's not it's not that the ones that fall asleep miss it and the ones who don't don't right they all fall asleep the problem is some of them have put oil in their lamps and some of them have not and then when the time comes they want to borrow the oil in the lamp from the other people and like you said at the beginning one of the things that a lot of the commentators point out here is no one can get saved for you right that's one of the big takeaways of this passage is it's all about whether you have put oil in your lamp or not in terms mm-hmm. of the parable. Um, one of the commentators was trying to paint a picture of what this would be like in the marriage ceremony itself. And so you, as you teed up, you have the bridegroom who's coming back, but you don't know when the bridegroom is coming back. And there must have been some kind of announcement like today the bridegroom is coming. So prepare mm-hmm. the party or next week or something like that. But in this story, instead of showing up at six o'clock when everybody's ready for dinner, Time goes on and on and on, and the bridegroom doesn't come, and and, it, and he doesn't come until midnight. And so right. everybody has left the party except for these bridesmaids. And what's supposed to happen apparently, and one of the limits of understanding this parable is we just don't have that much information about how these Jewish weddings happened. But mm-hmm. apparently what would happen is the bridesmaids would go out, and they've got their lamps, and they're supposed to shine them and bring the bridegroom in kind of honor Mm -hmm. and illuminate and put the focus Uh on the bridegroom. And so they are the welcoming party 
for the bridegroom. And what ends up happening is it's a pretty mediocre welcoming party because only half the people have their lamps on. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about what would the analog be for us? It it would kind of be like the send off more like for us where you have the bridesmaids and the groomsmen who are supposed to be in charge of the send off and they've got sparklers for everybody and they've got rice for everybody to throw and everybody's going to line up in a, in a big tunnel and they're going to pull up the getaway car. It's supposed to be decorated. (laughs) The, The story here would be like, well, you know, some of the bridesmaids went to the store and got the sparklers and some of them didn't. And some of the ones that were supposed to decorate the car did, but it really only had a little bit of paint on it uh, with the yeah. shoe polish and only two cans tied behind it. And actually, one of the ones that was supposed to pull it up forgot. And so the bride and the groom, when they came out, actually had to walk over to the car, which was a quarter of a mile away. I mean, that's the picture <laughs> is this was just right. the people did not prepare for what they knew was coming at some point. They got carried away dancing or eating or talking or whatever they were doing. And they made themselves, their current experience took precedent over what the main thing was supposed to be, the welcoming of the bridegroom. Or in our in our version, maybe sending off the bride and the groom the way that they're supposed to be sent off. So right. with that understanding, the problem is these people have focused on the temporal, the selfish the short-sighted aspect of their lives, even though they're there, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not Mm -hmm. preparing for the ultimate thing, which is the coming kingdom of God, the coming of the bridegroom. And I thought that was an interesting insight. Living with a longing and an expectation for the kingdom ties back to the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the ways that we prepare for that, of course, we have the inbreaking of the kingdom, but we'll have a fullness of the kingdom later. One of the ways that we prepare for that, though, is by doing exactly what that prayer says. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So part of of living for the return of the king is living like this is his kingdom, which means obeying him and living like a Christian. As opposed to the people who say, at some point, I will live like a Christian. When the king comes right. back, I'll I'll be there and I'll I'll be a part of it. And then time gets away from them and they don't. They don't live like that. They're not preparing. They're not ready. They're not asking God for his will to be done. They're doing their will in the world. So I think right. that's an interesting connection. Uh, the other one would be that, you know, being watchful, looking for God is an active participation in what God is doing. So mm-hmm. this was interesting. This in verse 13, the command watch, therefore, is from the Greek word Gregoreo, which is where we get the word Gregory. And mm-hmm. that word means watchful or keep awake mm-hmm. or someone who's on the lookout. And a gregarious person is a little bit different word, but a Gregory is someone who is looking for opportunities to bring people in or to connect mm-hmm. with people, or someone who's looking for opportunities to do the right thing. And that would be part of this watchfulness that we're expected to live like. Walking by the Spirit, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, obeying God, actively following Him, is part of what it means to be prepared for the second coming of the King. And that, and that's the big takeaway, is that we should be living that way at all times. Agreed. I think that's 
that's the big takeaway of living that way at all times. And the the second one that I would say from uh, verse 11 and 12, you know, Lord, Lord, open the door. And he says, truly, I say, I do not know you is the corollary to that is at some point it's too late to prepare it or it's too late to form a relationship with Christ. In other words, it's at some point the groom will arrive. And that's a hard truth, but it is a truth, is that we should live lives of expectation and preparation and the hard truth that at some point it's too late. Right. That's a really good uh, way to frame the end of this parable. There is a deadline and we don't know when it's going to be. It could be the return of Christ. It could be our own death, but there is a deadline that we need to be ready for. And I think you glean so much about this parable from the context. I think about in the previous chapter in chapter 24, this whole section begins with Jesus talking about what is going to happen and things are going to get terrible. There's going to be lawlessness. And he says in chapter 24, verse 12, lawlessness will be increased. And because of that, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So there's a watchfulness from the very beginning. And what's interesting is the exemplar that Jesus uses in chapter 24 is Noah. Noah, mm-hmm. while the people of his day were doing whatever they wanted, engaging in all kinds of evil acts and uh, self-indulgence, Noah was slowly but surely building the ark for the day that would come. He didn't know when the day was, but for the day that would come that God had promised that the floods would come. And, and in that time, he would be ready. So if you tie all the way back into the Sermon on the Mount, the person who's building their house on the rock, the person who's building their life on the word of God, right. the person who's obeying, actively obeying the word of God in their life is the person who's prepared when Jesus comes back, whenever that's going to be. And I think the the big takeaway for us from this parable is you can never rest on your spiritual laurels because that's not what really got you in the kingdom in the first place. Exactly. So you can't just say, well, I, you know, I, I accepted Christ in the past, or I prayed a prayer in the past, or I used to go to church, or I have a good Christian family, or I'm a pretty nice guy. None of that at the end of the day is going to matter. What matters is, are you actively following Christ now? Are you repenting from your sin? You're not perfect, but you're working on walking by the spirit, obeying God. Are you, uh, you know, looking for ways to take part in God's kingdom? Are you... Uh, living in such a way that reflects that you are awaiting God's consummation of his kingdom and the return of Christ. If those things are true about you now, you have 100% full assurance that you're in the wise group. If, on the other hand, you're saying, well, there have been seasons in my life where I've walked with God, and right now I'm not really doing anything, then that's where this parable should jar you into saying, it's not too late now. If you're having this thought, it's not too late now. Get ready. Be watchful. Start walking with God, living according to what he said. Start living in the kingdom, and you can be part of the welcome team that brings the bridegroom in uh, for the great wedding feast of the Lamb. I think that's the warning to us in this parable. I agree. I think if what Jesus is saying is true, and I believe that it is, then the kindest thing he could do is to shake us out of our complacency, and I think that's what this parable is doing.
Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.